Hello and welcome to Comedy in a Nutshell, the podcast with me, your host, Mark Decano, in which I talk to comedy newcomers, well-established acts and veteran stalwarts of the circuit about their experiences in comedy and what comedy means to them. You know, comedy is a very difficult thing to sum up in just a few words, and that's why I force other people to do it. You can find out more about my journey in comedy fandom on my website, thecomedynerd.com. I love talking to the people in comedy about comedy. If you'd like to hear what they have to say as much as I do, then please like, subscribe, rate, review, and share the podcast. Thank you. My guest this episode is a stand-up comedian who has been described as having a natural, cheeky lightness of touch. He has a humility which belies his talent, and I consider him one of our current great MCs. It's stand-up comedian Michael May. Can I start with saying that I've listened to a couple of episodes? Of course. Um, and they were great. I listened to Alex Farrow and Michael Odewale. Oh, lovely. They were great. And I always listen, I always like listening to Alex Farrow speak about anything, because it feels like sort of like, like a one-on-one with a university lecturer, and you're like, just tell me everything. <laughs> Yeah, it's been rolling around in my head this week, just all of his ideas about what comedy is and isn't, as is always the case every time I speak to him. Yeah. Yeah. Michael Oduwale as well, also yeah. just super insightful and hilarious. Completely, yeah. Great interviews. If anyone is listening to this before those, which is unlikely, but if they do come that way, go listen to them, they were great. Fantastic. Well, thank you. And thanks to Alex and Michael, because they were great people to talk to. Um, so let's talk about you, Michael. How did comedy come into your life? What was your earliest recollections of comedy as a as a thing? Well, as a thing, my so my sort of relationship with comedy young is the most basic English relationship with comedy. I think I literally was live at the Apollo. My parents really liked Jason Manford, especially um, Mickey Flanagan, John Bishop. They were like that era; those big ones. They were right as I was probably like. 10 to 15 I guess they were the biggest comedians in the country that must be maybe even a bit younger mm-hmm. um and so yeah they, it was literally just my parents watching the comedy that was on tv they had no sort of artistic pretensions they have no they, they've never like sought out a comedian or like found anyone who anyone hasn't heard of but they love the big ones yeah and they saw tom allen at royal albert hall last year and i was like what what is what is this <laughs> <laughs> Um, just you you eat up what they give you on the TV because those are excellent comedians. But so that was all of my early experiences was the main ones that we had. Yeah. And what about you? Did your ambitions lie in comedy early on, or did it come out of the blue? Not at all. So I this is, I apologise because this is sort of like a boring origin story that I'm sure so many people have. <laughs> is I played football really seriously, boringly seriously for like 15 years, every single day like academy football i played semi-pro for a bit um didn't make it fundamentally (laughs) uh, decided to go to university instead and started writing no one would read anything i wrote which it turns out is just always going to be true um (laughs) so i'd like like write short stories i'd give them to people and they'd be like yeah nice and i'd be like more more, please (laughs) um (laughs) Is it the worst thing you've ever read? Be honest with me. And then no one bothered ever saying. So I was like, fuck it, I'll just speak it to people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I had no, I had no plans of getting into comedy. No, I always liked it, but mm-hmm. I think it was, it was very much sort of a, oh shit, I 100% thought I was going to be playing for England. So <laughs> now I have something else to do. <laughs> so how did it begin for you then? What made you do comedy? I had 
you know it's one of those things where it's hard because you i always wonder whether i'm like rewriting the past Mm. on how much i think about that because i genuinely think it was i saw three shows in quick succession that i really liked Mm -hmm. and the third was may martin at soho theater and it was such a like incredibly casual performance and so conversational and so speaking about things that are related to that i was like that's probably what it would be like if i did it (laughs) (laughs) so i I should just do it and then i went on and i was incredibly deadpan with like boringly overwritten sort of semi-surreal one-liners i guess and i was like oh no it's it's not like that you have to be really good to do that <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah i saw ahisha's show at 20 so 2017 i started end of 2017 i saw ahisha's show from that year which i forget which one it was and then um stuart lee was doing i guess oh god uh content provider yeah at that time that sounds right and yeah may martin's on which i forget what that show was called i think that show was then cannibalized into a recent netflix special um and yeah so all three of those loved all of them and they were completely different and as i think anyone who watches comedy and thinks they should do comedy they go like well these people are all just like me (laughs) and so it's a natural development that uh, i should become one of them (laughs) yeah it's an uninspiring tale of seeing really good stand-up and wanting to do something and just that's the thing i chose yeah so how did you cross the threshold from someone who saw comedy to someone who did comedy I I just didn't I didn't overthink it at all. I I just signed up and did it like a week later. I really I didn't even yeah I didn't faff about. I did like five gigs. I sort of went. I don't like being on stage. I don't like being in front of an audience. So I'm not going to bother. I didn't do it for like four months. I continued with my office job and then sat at my office job. I went. Oh, I have to do something. So then I did it pretty much every day since then until now <laughs> and yeah it sounds like i don't i think i don't want to make it sound like i don't love comedy i love comedy so much um but i sort of love it in the same way as i love books i don't i don't love the performance aspect of it if, if anything for me that's a big barrier and the, the the reason not to do stand-up is that people have to be there watching mm. um but i love the writing of it and uh I've only literally this year been like, I should try and perform. I should try and learn how to perform. Yeah. So it's, yeah, I, I just think of it as like, it's one of my favorite forms of writing because I think it's it's unpretentious and it's concise and direct and it's all about conveying meaning rather than sort of um, dancing around a message that may or may not exist. <laughs> I think it's just, yeah. Yeah. That's fascinating because it, it is very much a performance. So it's interesting that you sort of say that the performance side of comedy that, between writing and performance, the fact that that's not the preferred part of it, and it's the writing. Yeah. How do you overcome being in on stage in front of an audience? I think, I think I literally in the last three months have stopped viewing it as overcoming it. I think, I think before I was going, how do I overcome this? <laughs> um, now I'm going like, no, that's isn't a central part of it, and you're writing for the performance, mm. and I've only just accept that and I think a lot of that is like if you have a natural weakness in a thing a lot of your a lot of your conception of that thing I think is then just defending yourself against working on the aspect of it that it doesn't come naturally to you mm. um or at least I'm fucking I'm putting that in the passive voice of it that's just not completely about me um that's how I feel mm. which is I wish I didn't have to perform this but that's the only way that it works so it, you have to um 
and I take a lot of satisfaction from writing jokes for other people. I, I really don't feel hugely better about getting a laugh myself versus watching someone else do a joke I wrote and it getting a good reaction. Mm. Um, but yeah, I just think I think some people like to perform and some people don't. I think a lot of people never do stand up because they don't like to perform. Um, I think a lot of people do stand up for a bit and then stop because they don't like the performance. I think there are people who are really successful in stand up who still the performance aspect of it is the like James Acaster. I think that seems to be the case, right? That all of his mm. sort of recent conversation around wanting to stop or um, just having a sort of antagonistic relationship with people who love what he does. I really relate to that stuff. I really feel like, yeah, the nightmare is that you can't just do it in a vacuum because I don't, I don't, I don't, I want people to like it, but I don't need the validation. I don't want like, I don't need people screaming my name. It doesn't feel, it doesn't do anything for me. No. Not that it's happened. Not that it will. <laughs> <laughs> what about um, if you're MCing a gig? Because that's less about performance. Well, it's still a performance, but it's less so and more about creating an energy and interacting with the audience, improvising. Uh, that contradicts with what you said about you enjoy the writing. So if you're performing something that you've written, that's like a, a vessel for what you've created. Mm -hmm. Whereas emceeing is, I suppose, slightly less of a performance and more of an interaction, but it's not something you've written. Mm -hmm. It's something you're you're improvising on the spot. I mean, is that a better or a worse scenario in, a, in that perspective? So it's interesting, given sort of I'm an MC by trade, <laughs> um, general perception and the reality, the last two years I've probably emceed 75% of the gigs I've done. Um, the reason why MCing works for me is because I totally view it as a service role. I really, I think it's the most egoless place in comedy. Um, my job is to make sure that the first act does well, is how I see it. And then after that, it's to make sure everyone's having a nice time. Um, I really view it as like, I have like five things I have to achieve in the first 15 minutes of the show. One of them is sort of explain how it goes. One of them is to make people feel like it's going to be good, which is even if I'm all I'm doing is instilling confidence that like the comedians have done comedy before, if nothing else. <laughs> um, do a joke so that the first joke they hear isn't from the first person that comes out. And I guess to sort of quash any designs anyone has on ruining the show just by if I feel like there's an area that's less engaged, engaging them. Um, so I really, I really just view it as a totally different exercise. I think it's because you know how in America it's like bottom of the hierarchy. It's viewed as like the the bottom rung in mm. stand up. Um, I disagree with that. I think it's one of the most important roles, and it should be paid more than everything else. But I do think it you're not doing stand up in the same way. Um, I think there's ways of doing it as stand up, but I think if you go out and you purely do it as stand up, someone is suffering for that. Mm. Unless you're just amazing, <laughs> which is, um, I've seen I've seen people do like conventionally bad emceeing that totally works because they're just being so funny that like good for you. <laughs> <laughs> You've been described as oozing confidence before, and that quote comes from um, your performance at Leicester Square New Comedian of the Year. That wasn't you emceeing. So if you're perceived as oozing confidence as a turn, are you actually confident, or are you more confident as an MC when you're like managing? the room and, and, and more in control if you like i have a i have a confidence when i'm emceeing that i don't when i'm doing sets that is informed by um i literally just read steve martin's book 
Um, a pleasure to be here. A pleasure. Oh, fuck, I literally did not look at the title of it, but he has a novel. Um, have you read his stuff? I, I haven't. No, I'm aware of it. In fact, I had a, a discussion with another comedian who said that they just finished reading it and they couldn't remember the title of it either. Which <laughs> a memorable title. Um, so I'm blaming him, not me. But the sort of conceit is that it's um. It's this guy who has all these problems. He's 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 sort of either obsessive compulsive or autistic or something. It's um it's sort of because it's from his, his perspective. It's not sort of diagnostic language, but he has engagement with all sorts of like health services and blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. But he um he kind of overcomes a lot of those problems by being brave for someone else. So he starts looking after a kid, and he finds that his inability to walk down a curb doesn't serve this kid. So he has to get over himself in order to help someone else. And I always feel like I'm really confident emceeing because I don't, I'm not going out there for me. I'm going out there for us. And I'm sort of an envoy. I'm sort of a diplomat between the comedians and the audience hmm. saying, these people over here, you're going to love it. Um, but don't be, don't be awful, please. But like, you're, you seem nice, but like, they're, they're like, we'll be fine. But like, please. <laughs> um, and so I always think of it as like, I'm sort of, I'm able to go on and think, well, this is more important than how I feel about it, that the show goes well. So I just really don't have any, I don't take anything personally if I'm seeing if it's, I feel a little bit lighter about it. I'm sort of not that worried. Um, I also just do it so much that it just doesn't phase me too much. Um, but oozing confidence is interesting because I'm not a hugely confident performer by any stretch. And uh, I seem confident, but I think that's just sort of, I seem sort of apathetic. <laughs> I think... <laughs> I just think the people in my life always feel like they're like, give me something. And I think that that is what comes across to an audience is like, oh, this guy's sort of emotional range is here anyway. So I never seem hugely anything. Like if I go out and I feel like I'm doing a big act out, and I feel like I'm screaming at them. I'll see a video of it and I'm just like talking and I'm smiling. And I feel like I was so angry. <laughs> and they're like, you, you don't display emotion on your face. <laughs> so yeah. Is that part of... Um... This idea that when you're on stage, you're playing a version of you're playing a character, you're acting in essence, so that it's not you on stage, it's a character of you. Mm, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. I think if anything, I take it. I think I take, well, especially doing a spot, I feel like it is really me. Um, it's more me than me in the green room, probably. All right. Like I think I'm, because I'm a little bit more cutting and I'm a little bit more vulgar, whereas I think... I'm a very polite individual. <laughs> I think that's just like the main value that my parents have instilled in me is just like be polite. Just I do whatever you want. If you run someone over, say sorry afterwards. Like, it doesn't matter. Um, and so I think that's what it is. I think it's um, yeah. I think I think the confidence thing. I thought also that let's just go here to find out. It's hilarious that that was a review. The reason why they said that is because I was quite late in the night and it was a very long show. And I just sat side of stage writing callbacks. So I just came on and did three minutes of callbacks and then two minutes of jokes and got out of there. So I think they were like, wow, what a sort of baller move to improvise all your stuff. And I was like, it wasn't improvised. I wrote all of it all evening. <laughs> and callback work, especially in a situation where everyone else is just coming on and re- like doing the rehearsal mm. lines. So I think they perceived that as like, God, this is such a uh, crazy decision. And I was sort of side stage being like, well, at least I don't have to tell that joke and I don't have to tell that joke so I can just reference what they did and what they did. Yeah. <laughs> so I suppose there's some confidence in that, but 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting there because you talk about uh, you imply a greater confidence in your writing than in performing as a whole. And yet you're up against in this this competition scenario against people who are pitching their best pre-prepared material. And you go out in that situation mm. and go, oh, well, I've written, but forget all of that. This is stuff that I just made up in the last half an hour. <laughs> well, I think it's fair to say that like, just because I wrote in advance doesn't mean it's good. And just because I like writing doesn't mean I'm better at it. I think it's, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm probably a better improviser than a writer, but I just prefer writing. <laughs> and I think it's more interesting. Um, and I also, I, I don't draw such a hard line between like improvising and writing. I feel like you are writing, you're just doing it there and then. Like it's, I think it's the same thing. And because you're in that flow state, if anything, it's sort of easier to be disinhibited. And I think when people talk about writing on stage, I think a lot of the time they're talking about verbalizing ideas they've had before. Mm. So I don't necessarily believe they're, they're writing on stage. They're just finding the things they've already thought of. They're just like channeling the subconscious because they're not quite as foggy with like, God, I have to come up with something. Yeah. Um, sort of now urgent with God, I have to come up with something. <laughs> um, so yeah, I don't know. I think um, I think it's all writing, and I think um, I'm just recently starting to sort of because of the limiting factor of like not wanting to perform, not loving performing. I used to be a bit more like I'll do whatever they want, and so I didn't have the confidence to be doing all of my writing. I have I've always had sort of like for for every ten minutes of good stuff that works in the club, I have I have thirty minutes of stuff I've done three times and is too annoying self-indulgent convoluted to perform anywhere other than the open mic that i host every wednesday (laughs) (laughs) um well let's talk about your writing a little bit i mean are you a person who sits down and clear their mind and you have a blank piece of paper or are you one of these people who again just has ideas popping into their head constantly and has to make notes on the backs of envelopes and on their phone notes for sure Mm -hmm. but if i sit down i do both to be honest i have i have like a a huge note in my phone that's just every idea I've ever had and then I yeah I'm quite I'm like boringly diligent to be honest I do homework and I sit down and do writing mm-hmm. I have like various processes I'll go through at the minute I'm doing I'm doing a thing where because I'm right trying to write stories mm-hmm. I do these two long stories as the first bits I ever film and release um and you saw them, yes. You saw you saw very early versions <laughs> recently. Um, the heroin story, mm-hmm. for example. Yeah. Um, and so what I'm doing with those, I'm writing them as prose. I'm writing them as like short stories, and then I'm going through, like, combing through them for anything that's interesting, and then that's my sort of like jump off for writing exercise. Mm. Can I just tell the story in the best, most interesting way, as I would if it were a book? but go through it and decorate it with jokes and make it stand up, basically. Yeah. So is it the story that becomes the most important aspect? How much? How many jokes does there need to be before the story is diluted by the, the humour? I don't know. I think that's the balance we're going to find. <laughs> um, I think that also depends on how comfortable you are with quiet, how much you value being interesting over funny. I think that that's a very personal line. Hmm. Um, and I think a lot of that comes from how confident you are. I saw... Are his shows new? Uh, his new show, the one that won the Edinburgh Award, yeah. uh, ends ends, mm-hmm. and I thought it was brilliant. It was so great. I learned so much stuff. But there were moments in it where I was sat there going, "I'd have to do a joke now," <laughs> because like I'm compelled by what you're doing, but I'm feeling like 
I need I, I would I would have to release this tension sooner and so I think like he obviously has the confidence and the knowledge that the stuff he's saying is worthwhile enough to keep going even into the longer bits without a laugh he knows where the laughs are coming as well so I'm watching it with a level of anxiety he doesn't have <laughs> um but I think yeah like I would end up sort of probably diluting some of the message in favor of a couple more gags but then I'll watch another show and I'll be like I would probably have I would maybe be in a couple of those gags and say that thing in full because it's really interesting. Tell me what that was. You talked a bit about some of the comedians that you've seen. Do you go to comedy as an entertainment? Are you a regular viewer of stand-up comedy yourself? I think because I MC so much, I watch all the shows I do. Right. So I think I don't really have this like pop-in and out relationship with it that a lot of my peers do where they're doubling and tripling. I tend to be in the room and watch everyone. So I think I probably watch a whole show every day, typically. Mm. So I can do 50 different comedians, full 20-minute set, word for word, <laughs> and uh, it's a nightmare. It is a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> if you're seeing something that a comedian performs for the first time, or like you went to see his show, are you able to sit back and enjoy it like a, a regular Joe or do you see it from the comedian's uh, mindset? Are you analysing what they've done and where they're going? Like that instant there that you said about this needs a attention breaker here and, you know, that they've managed to hold the, the, the high note, if you like, and not let it go. Um, I think the a weird and interesting thing, I think, is I quite often watch it through the, the eyes of whoever I'm with. Mm. So... Because I watch so much stand-up, I think I sometimes like go in and say I'm with a friend who's it's their first gig. I can really adopt that. Like they must be seeing it new, and I feel like it's newer to me. Um, and you you get less concerned about the tricks and the craft. I think if you watch it with them, whereas if I'm sat there with another comedian, I I feel like we're both sort of going mm-hmm, 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 <laughs> um, which is a terrible habit. But also, if I think if the stuff is great you lose yourself in it immediately mm-hmm. like i watched garrett millerick recently and i've seen him do that set a couple of times mm-hmm. but it's so good that every time i find myself just watching a brilliant show and not even attempting to dissect the technique or the writing it's just like oh this is a finished piece of art fundamentally yeah so they just enjoy it and i think when it's so shiny and so good and so tight and like garrett's performance is so big and he's got such like a clear persona. You, you really do just get sold the whole experience, and you're like, I really go along for the ride with someone like that. Who's someone who's that good? Mm. When you see comedy like that, does that inspire you or drive you further? Does it promote you to continue or to be better? Yeah, 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 for sure. Um, I saw Sarah Keyworth recently and thought, fuck, <laughs> need, need to do more of that. Whatever that is, that's great. Um, I saw a Valdas Carosas recently. Do you know Valdas? No, I know the name. I thought I've never seen them. He's unreal. He's so funny. And uh, I watched his jokes and I thought maybe I should start doing two to three minute long, uh, really perfectly formed short story jokes because that's what Valdas does, and I want to be him now. <laughs> uh, yeah, oh, 100%, very inspiring. When you watch people, even like my friends who I write with, and um, like Bemi Oladipo. I, whenever I watch Bemi, I'm like can I just like have a drop of your sort of fundamental essence to add into my personality? 
<laughs> um, inspiring. Does it make you competitive? Are you, we've just talked about you being inspired by uh, other comedians. Do you see other comedians and think, well, I can do better than that or I should be better than that? No, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. I think I, I think sometimes if I'm watching something and I think it's really bad <laughs> or I think it's like, you know, if it's just like basic and it's really working, then I find it frustrating, I think. And I get a bit like, I'll watch someone do like a series of callback and, review, callback and reveals and it's working and I'm stood side of stage going, they're going to hate me because if they like that, then they're not going to like me because I'm deliberately not doing that. Mm. Um, so I think I get a little bit, I have, I have some sort of awful part of me that is boosted by bad version of the thing because it gives me some of the feeling where I go, it is worthwhile me doing it because I'm not just doing that bullshit. I just don't think it's, um, no, I don't feel competitive in a bad way about comedians. And also, I've just been on Reese James's tour. I've just been opening for him. And if, you're go, if your attitude as a comedian is competition with whoever you're on with and you have to open for Reese, <laughs> he's the best. He's unbelievably good. And his writer, he just has every, like, he's the most well-rounded comedian I've seen, I think. Of, you go in with sort of like, oh, I've seen Reese. Yeah, you probably can't do crowd work. And then he's way better than me at crowd work. And I'm like, oh, oh my God. <laughs> and then he starts doing like a big act out and you're like, stop it. You can't be good at every aspect of this. It's infuriating. <laughs> um, watching him abandon the show, come back into the show, do what they need to get them back on his wavelength. It's just, I, yeah, I just, any sort of competitiveness that I may have felt. I don't think I did, to be honest. But watching him, it was just like, everyone who's better than me, I have to be learning from. And everyone who's worse than me means I probably shouldn't quit yet. <laughs> <laughs> On that aspect of um, competitiveness, so the other side of that, of course, is we talked about briefly Leicester Square New Comedian of the Year, which was uh, 2021. Now, you were, you were one of 15 in that final, as opposed to many hundreds who entered. And you're up against mm-hmm. comedians like Anna Magliano, D'Alem, Dan Tin, and Sam Christie. Is it different when you are specifically in a competitive scenario? And how do you feel about competitions like that in general? um the only competition i so i have a weird relationship with competitions to be fair because i did like very open mikey ones where they were like it felt like there was no choice but to do them and then as soon as i sort of i did as soon as i did so you think you're funny which is the first proper one i did mm-hmm. i not to be a knob i had a great gig and no one else did it was a tough room <laughs> and i went on a crowd work for seven minutes because it was what was necessary and I was doing really well and I kind of turned the room around and I was like, it, I, was, I was really new. So it was like, it wasn't, that wasn't happening all the time. So it stands out in my memory as I was like, that was a, that was a banger. I did, I did really well. <laughs> and then I didn't get through because they were like, you didn't do material. Hmm. And I was sort of like, what are we, what are we judging? If this is a writing competition, then can I, can I hand you my material now? I thought we were doing stand up. I thought we were doing whatever's going to be the best thing to do for the gig. But, um, I then basically sort of conscientiously objected from anything where you had to do the same stuff again. Mm. Um, and it's why I've never done BBC. I feel like the fundamental flaw of the BBC competition, if 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 there is a clip that's going to get me in trouble, is uh, <laughs> you have to do the same set on TV twice. Mm. And kind of the conceit of stand-up is that I'm just making this up. <laughs> yeah. And so like your first exposure to anyone is... A direct comparison between you, very nervous, doing the exact same lines, 
And even the throwaways, you're going to do the same way. And the little pretend to improvise line, you're going to do the same way. Mm. And I was like, we're really showing our hand here for no reason on TV. Um, and so I just did Leicester Square because I was allowed to do whatever I wanted every round. That was the only that was the only reason why I did it. Mm. David was just like, do different material every time if you want. And so I did. <laughs> yeah. But did that situation make you feel more relaxed being able to do whatever you want or more competitive because you knew you could change up your own rules if you like? Um, I don't think I feel competitive about stand-up, to be honest, really. Yeah. Especially because there's such a huge trade-off with everything. Um, unless you're sort of like this pure artistic vessel, there's some version of compromise to get success really early. There's some version of sort of stubbornness to holding on for success later on i think as, as soon as your decision making is guided by what's going to by just the results mm. um you are making a deal with yourself either way and so whenever i see people like flying off ahead people who i started with i don't worry about it because i sort of you can see what they've chosen to do and you haven't chosen to do that or you have and you're and it didn't work out the same way for you, which is just then a lesson to learn. No, I think, I think I'm just not competitive. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, obviously I talk to people about lockdown. So you started comedy in 2017. How did that affect your your burgeoning career in comedy? How, how did you react to it? I, I'm going to guess that you loved the idea of not having to perform <laughs> and it was an opportunity to write. You're, you're right in that I wrote a bad novel and threw it in the bin at the end of lockdown. <laughs> that, is, that is true. Um that is more or less what happened. I I read a hundred books that year, whatever. So I really, yeah, I didn't mind it. Um, the problem with it was I had gigs, I think maybe my, my fourth open spot, the comedy store, doing 10 minutes. And I had Poodle Club the next day. And they were my final two gigs before we went full lockdown. They were like the 17th, 18th of March or whatever those dates were. Hmm. And... I did not do well at the comedy store. It was the first rough one I'd had there. And it was totally my fault. I didn't decide what I was going to do. I turned up. I was nervous. I was shaky. I just didn't do what I was planning on doing. And it was the only time that Don was ever there. And I don't know how many Don Ward war stories you've heard on here. But <laughs> as the man who now who runs the agency I am signed with, I think he's great. But <laughs> he heavily knocked my confidence because I didn't do very well I w he then is waiting at the door when I came off stage says come with me gets me in his office does the classic line how do you think that went mm. I say not very well I don't know if you've seen the other ones but they were much better I've made a few mistakes and I wasn't I didn't really do a very good job of clawing it back and he was sort of like yeah I agree um and then he read a list of all my jokes back to me and after each one asked, why is that funny? Jeez. <laughs> and I sort of went, Don, they work normally, otherwise I wouldn't have fucking done them here. <laughs> and he was saying, like, do you have a job? And I was like, uh-huh. And he was like, why don't you talk about a job? And I'm like, uh-huh. <laughs> um, <laughs> so such a demoralizing experience that the next day I then was, like, so upset. And I went to the Poodle and bombed there as well because of the day before. And then I didn't get to gig for a however long hmm. i was off the back of maybe the two worst gigs i'd had to that point because they were both at the time to me they were huge gigs and i just fucked them up and so i really went into lockdown being like probably i needed the break to be honest because i'd been gigging so relentlessly in preparation for them completely fumbled them 
and then I sort of would have just plowed ahead and probably it would have damaged my uh, um, feelings about stand up if I just kept. Um, so no, I needed the break and I really, it was like a good, I don't know, do you ever have those days when you're really clear and you go like, should I be doing anything that I'm doing? <laughs> Are any of these decisions correct? Let me go through them. Would I choose to do them today? And that was like the whole lockdown for me was going, should I be doing this? Um, and then because the second any gigs in the world came up, I went, yes, please. And I was on the first bus to Jericho to do their car park gigs. I realized, oh, yeah, I really, I do really like it. Um, I like having that out there and mm. the, the thing to do that isn't all of the jobs I've had, which I hated. So uh, I need to just find a way, find a way to yeah. keep liking it, really. Yeah. Given how we've been talking about, you know, writing versus performance, etc., it sounded like you leapt back with a zeal into those new opportunities. Was it was it easy going back after being locked down for so long? Um, but I think it was okay. Yeah, I think it was fine. Um, I think I needed to do some thinking away from stand up about what I wanted to do. Um, and weirdly for me, just totally by chance, the the lockdown kind of represents being in a, my open mic versus sort of entering professional comedy because as soon as I came out of it I then had a really good open spot at the comedy store and they signed me and they then got me gigging all over the country in totally random places that I've never been before and that's what I've, I've been doing since so I've been full-time for like two years now no year and a half two years no year and a half and the lockdown really really finally faded away so yeah. To me, like it's a big dividing line of I really was totally clueless, didn't have any idea what I even wanted to do, had a year to think about it, and was presented very fortunately with an opportunity to go and do sort of circuit boot camp, which is what the, the store have sent me on. Mm. And I think that relationship, the lockdown, I think a lot of people sort of felt like it pushed them back. And I didn't have anything before, so there was nothing to push back. But then I also got really lucky. And so it kind of just represents this before and after in in comedy for me. Yeah. You spoke a little bit uh, about being a bit nervous about going on at the comedy store and then about how the one gig affected the other. Mm -hmm. Do you get nervous? Do you get anxious about going on the before a performance? And, and how much does that, uh, the knock-on effect of a poor night really, or a good night, linger with you? It um a good night doesn't touch the sides a good night i've forgotten it happened before i got home um it's i feel like it's just relief that i didn't fuck it up um and it's actually something i'm trying to i'm trying to fix at the minute i sort of go if i'm gonna be so upset about the gigs where i just really drop the money i need to accept some yeah i because i really do i really let bad gigs affect me in a way that is it's no good i um i had a few rough ones in august i had like maybe four tough gigs in very quick succession and i was sort of full like oh, i don't know about this it's like what's the point and why am i why am i pretending that i should be the one doing this um and then i have a couple good ones and it doesn't really fully restore me back to feeling like oh i'm great let's go i don't i don't have that like blank slate I, I try to do the Sarah Millican business of, um, yeah, forget about it by whatever time the next day. But mm. I think, um, yeah, I'm just, I just, I'm sensitive, I think. And as we all are, but 
I find it upsetting when they don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> well, without wanting to dwell too much, it does seem like an opportune moment to ask you about your worst and best gigs mm. so far. I mean, probably start with the worst since we're there already, and then we can end on an upbeat. <laughs> yeah, there's boring worst ones in terms of like just straightforward sort of homophobia or like whatever, like those real bullshit ones where you're like, this was a crime. This shouldn't have happened. <laughs> um, but the, the more interesting worst gig story is I was booked for a corporate way too soon. I was a year in, I was bad. And I was booked to host a short film awards at the Mayfair Hotel. And I was being paid £500, which I was like, I'm being paid a million pounds. <laughs> and so I was like, okay, this is huge. And they would, they just booked me for it. And I think that they were like, we've got, we've got such a cheap host. Because I didn't know until I got there. The prize for the short film awards was a million pounds. Jesus. Yeah. It was a million pounds. And people flew in from like all over Europe, from L.A., they were all there at the Mayfair Hotel. They'd made these short films and it was being judged on the night. And so they were fundamentally my job is to say, hello, we're here. Five minutes of, uh, sort of being vaguely amusing, but mostly just explaining how it's going to work. Um, because they didn't give me any information, I had nothing to work with. So all my writing was about the Oscars, which had happened the day before. So I was like, I, I just need something. I just need like a backup plan. So I just like, wrote jokes about the Oscars because like, oh, these are film people. It'll be fun. All of them bomb. I'm rubbish at stand up, <laughs> and it's like a stuffy room anyway. The, there's all these like very serious, self serious sort of directors and actors and stuff, and I I had to basically do that and introduce first film, play first film, come back on, introduce director, director speaks, introduce the next film. I was doing that for 14 films. It was back to back. I then say judges are going to choose and we'll announce the prize. Then we're going to have a party. The first film, all fine. I then say, oh, and we're going to get the director up. Who's going to say a couple of words? He was some actor who I recognised the second he stood up. Um, he stands up and goes, what? <laughs> I said, a couple of words, please, my good man. Um, and then he's like, what, what do you mean? I was like, get down here fucking right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he comes up and shakes my hand. He's like, what do you want me to say? I'm like, I don't know. Whatever. Say anything. Um so he's like, oh, yeah, nice. Thanks for having me. This is great. I hope I win. Goes off. I'm like, give it up for John. Great. Second film comes on. The sound's completely fucked. So it's the sound's cutting in and out. It's broken. There's like people chatting, like murmuring. There's lots of like, oh, my God, what's going on? Is it broken? So I come on after it. And I'm like, oh, uh, uh, get our director up for a couple of words. <laughs> director comes up. He's so upset, million pounds on the line, their last six months of filming, like whatever. She was just, like genuinely tearful, being like, I worked so hard on this and it was really a shame for it not to be presented in the way that I would. And I was like, give up for Julia, <laughs> great sound. <laughs> and then I have to introduce the next film, sound's still fucked. I run up to the back, I'm in the booth with the sound people and they're like, the sound's fucked, it's not working at all. And they're like, no, that's fine. They then come out and they're like, oh, yeah, it is broken. I'm like, yeah, have you been listening? I'm in trouble here. What is going on? Um, and then so they're like, oh, yeah, we'll fix it. So I go on and I say, OK, we'll, we'll replay any of the ones that have broke. Any of the ones that aren't working, we'll play them at the end. I was just like, OK, that's that's surely the only way. They're, they're judging a million pound competition here now. Mm. So what, there's no other option. It then is, continues to be broke for the next four. <laughs> they 
they're so furious at me. I'm the only face they can see that's related to this operation. And they think I am the fool who has scratched the record or whatever. <laughs> it's just like people talking, it's becoming ridiculous. People are now coming on, the directors are coming on afterwards, like doing jokes. They're being like, there's not much to say about how shit this is. And I'm just like, ah. <laughs> Play the rest of them. Nice, lovely. Then at the end, I'm like, I run back up and I'm like, so which one's next? Which one are we replaying? And they're like, oh, we don't have time. I was like, no, 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 no. That's not really. We've got like six films that we haven't been able to watch properly. And they're like, yeah, no, we don't have time. So can you just tell them, sorry, we don't have time. And actually tell them we've overrun by so much that the party's cancelled. <laughs> And so I have to go down and be like, guys, I'm so sorry, but the, we, uh, we don't have time. So the judges are going to make their decision now. Genuine out people shouting, being like, what? We haven't seen my film. Like, shit like that. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> um, the judges are going to go deliberate. So have 10 minutes to yourselves. That was it. And then I'm in the room and everyone is badgering me. And literally, I was just like, you know what? There's so much hostility towards me in this room. And I literally then was like, yeah, this is total bullshit. I agree. I don't work for them. I don't know anything about this. Um, I, like, this is totally unacceptable. I, I'm also going to complain. I think this is outrageous. I don't know them. I've never met them. They were unprofessional with me as well. They didn't even tell me how it works and all of this. They then come out, announce a million pounds. Someone's had the best moment of their life. One of the films that we could actually see. They're going insane. They're crying. Everyone else is like, oh my, what is this? We then go out, party room. Everyone is allowed to take one drink to take out. And it's like all these really fancy posh directors and stuff. And they're just like given a bottle of Peroni to stand in the foyer with. Um, and so I went over to the people who ran the thing, who was just this awful woman from LA. And I was like, well, thanks for having me. Um, I'll, I'll invoice in the morning. And then this guy runs over and he's like, oh, thank you so much. I'm sorry. It's such a, it's such a car crash. And I was like, oh, that's, uh, um, yeah, that's fine. But I was like still a bit like, what was that? Um, and then the woman who ran it, she turned around and he goes, didn't he do well? This, this random guy who was just like trying to help me out. And she goes, it was fine. Turned around. I left. Never saw or heard from anyone from that event again. My <laughs> worst gig. Well, yeah. <laughs> and then some. <laughs> it was so bad. Is that, do you take that forward with you now? It's like, going, well, doesn't matter if I bomb because it will never be. Well, yeah, I think at the time it was like, I walked away and I was like, am I not going to be arrested for that? Like, am I not in trouble somehow? <laughs> uh, I should not have been a part of such a terrible thing. <laughs> to where the money came from. Well, let's quickly turn it around then. And what so far has been the best gig you've had? Um, what's the best gig I had? I think, oh, I don't know if the best gig I have is like the ones where I like do the best like have like feel like i've um i think it's the ones where i'm proud of myself because i think i I think maybe i thought it wasn't going to go well and then i figured it out where it wasn't going well and i turned it around i would say mm -hmm. i had a there was a gig so really funny reese has just finished the tour so he he rates every gig out of 10 and he posted the ratings oh right yeah. which is a funny thing to do in the comments everyone who was at the shows was like yeah that was yeah that one was a nightmare that was great um there was one of them that he really didn't like, but I had a great gig at. And I was like, I understand why you didn't like it because you had to be out there so much longer than me. But I was like, I was going out and I was like, this is frosty. And I'm just coming out with nothing, which is how I start all of them. I just do 10 minutes of crowd work, 15 minutes of material. And that's just like the formula. Um, and it was so frosty for the first five. I was like, oh my God, what is this? And then I kind of 
got like a really nice bit of crowd work, uh, segued into my material, had a lovely show. It was like, I think it was Shrewsbury. Mm-hmm. And I was pretty proud of myself for doing really well on a show where I was like, that was so bombable. I really could have, I could have walked away feeling like, ugh. Um, and I didn't. I just like held my nerve and uh, played it how it needed to be played, I think. And so I, I like the problem solving aspect of stand up. Yeah. I really like that there is a, there's probably a way this can work. Um, and sometimes you go, that way isn't from me, but let's try anyway. Like, the, I know someone who would do great at this, but I'll give it a go. Let's see if I can figure it out. <laughs> so, yeah, that, that one's nice. I like that one. Yeah. Have you, at this point, learned any lessons or developed any philosophies about how you how you move forward? Um, philosophies? I think I'm just coming into understanding ones. That I was. I think there's so much advice around stand-up and there's so much, like, law and um, just received wisdom that doesn't make sense when you're new you think it does and then you think it's wrong and then sort of circle back around and realize what what they were saying kind of thing um and i've just recently come back around to sort of oh i should be in my world and i should be inviting them into my world and it should be sort of a nice trip for them to take a break in someone else's brain whereas a lot of what i was doing before was sort of can I do that style of this? Can I do that kind of thing? Can I have all these different options so that when I turn up somewhere, I can play what they want? Um, and I'm I'm just starting to become a bit more sort of grounded in what, why would you come see me rather than anyone else? Um, what do I have to say? What do I think is interesting? What show would I? What show can I put on that I would actually like to watch? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that, I don't know if that's necessarily a philosophy. But it's a it's a new sort of framework to work from. Yeah, yeah. I don't have any I don't have any hard and fast rules about stand up. I don't think. Um, I think that I think maybe a, a a rule I have myself is like if it's if it's an easy laugh, unless it's like such a necessary thing to get to the next like a link or whatever, hmm. it's going to age really badly. So I. Would, I'm trying to stop doing it. I think, and anything that feels like a, I always worry I'm getting the wrong kind of laugh. I, I, I think like God, are they enjoying that in the opposite way of how I meant it? <laughs> uh, like I had a really weird experience a couple of weeks ago in Sheffield. But I have this joke, which is like a, a joke I've been doing forever. It's just a simple explaining joke. Um, bisexual it means I have sex with men, but not in a gay way. It's nothing. Um, and then someone in the front row goes, aye, good lad, no homo. <laughs> <laughs> and I sort of went, yeah, that is that is the joke, I guess. So fair enough. <laughs> and yeah, do I stop doing it? No, probably not. But um, have an awareness that that is what some people are hearing, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Michael, how can we find out about you and where we can come and see you? Um michael may 3000 instagram is sort of the only thing um i'm gonna start doing lots of work in progress shows next year and i'll post about all of them relentlessly on there i'm gonna be doing lots of those sort of splits with people who i think are funny mm-hmm. yeah and i'll, I'll pro- promote all of that on instagram because i must <laughs> and finally then how would you sum up comedy in a nutshell um uh, it's like an intimate space low ceiling 
probably not ideal that there's only room for one nut. <laughs> oh dear. Is that annoying? I apologize. <laughs> Come on, I believe in you. You could do better than that. Come on. <laughs> oh, okay. I think it is. I think it is. Um, fundamentally, I think it's whatever you want it to be. It's so varied that it is exploration. You have to find what you like, and that's the best thing about it. That's what I'm going with. <laughs> Michael, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Lovely to speak to you.